chapter 11. Tonight we want to study Genesis chapter 11 and complete our study of patriarchal period, or the primeval period. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Or literally, the whole earth, the whole earth was of one lip, one method of pronunciation, and one vocabulary. The whole earth was of one lip, one method of pronunciation, and one vocabulary. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. That ought to be southeastward. And it came to pass as they journeyed southeastward that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Come, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down, and the Lord came down to the city and the tower, to see the city and the tower, which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. Now, nothing will be withheld from them, which they have imagined to do. Come, let us go down. Notice that parallel. Twice, uh, these men said in verse four, 3 and 4, Come, let us make brick. Come, let us build a city and a tower. Now, God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down. By the way, a latent reference to the Trinity. Come, let us go down. And there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. From there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this great chapter tonight. Here's the origin of languages. One of the things that perplexes modern, uh, modern linguists is the problem of what is the origin of languages. Did man have a common language at one time? Here is the answer, the only satisfactory answer. And here thou didst confuse the languages of men because we know that the thing that unifies man is the language. When are men are unified in language, uh, there are many things they can do. And since this group of people was unified in sin, then thou didst distinguish and disperse them by confusing their languages. Now we pray that thou help us as we study this chapter tonight. It's a hard passage, a difficult passage. It has a genealogy which might seem to be dry, and yet it's an exceedingly important passage. So help us as we study together. We pray for Mrs. Collier. We thank thee for her life and service here at the school. We pray, Lord, that thou continue uh, to restore her to health and strength. We thank thee for what thou hast done with, uh, in behalf of B.J. Chapman. Many of the people here pray for him. We thank thee that he enrolled back here the spring semester. He's having to come in a wheelchair, and uh, he's lost one leg, and he can't walk on the other, and yet he's so dedicated to being in the service of the Lord that he, despite a good deal of pain, is here with us in attending school this semester. We thank thee for it. We pray for the, uh, the Donaldson family. We don't pray for Rembert. We don't need to. He's in thy presence tonight. Join the presence of his Savior. But we do pray for Sue and for the family, for the children, that thou will undertake for them in a very special way. Give to them a sense of thine own presence and comfort. Now, Lord, we are thy children here tonight, and we pray, Lord, that thou will help us to understand this chapter. And it may be that there's somebody here tonight who is a stranger to the grace of God, just like Rembert Donaldson, 12, 13, 14 years ago, who has come here tonight. We pray, Lord, that the uh, Word of God may, may have full course in his life or her life, that they may see for the first time that God who created this world, but who also loved them, gave himself for them, and may even tonight come to embrace the Savior. Bless our missionary conference this week, Father. Do thou deal with some of our students and help them to perhaps make the decision they need to make regarding their personal relationship to thee. Now, once again, we commit ourselves in this hour to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, so far, let's go back and see what we've studied. 
one. You know, the book of Genesis is divided into two major sections, primeval history and patriarchal history. Now, if you're listening while the people are coming in, listen very carefully. Two major sections. You know why I'm underscoring this? Because next week we're going to start the second major section of the book of Genesis. There are two major sections of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is primeval history. And Genesis 12 through 50 is patriarchal history. Genesis 1 through 11 is primeval history. Now, under that primeval history, what have we had um, so far? And I guess I need my outline because my memory is getting real poor. Well, anyway, under primeval history, number one, we had the creation of the universe and man. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Second, we had the original state of man prior to his fall. That's Genesis 2, verse 4 to verse 25. Third, we had the fall of man. Genesis 3. Fourth, after the fall of man, we had the great increase in sin. Genesis 4 and 5. Five, the flood. Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Six, the table of nations, which we had last time. Genesis chapter 10. Now, 7, 8, and 9 tonight. You have an outline. What is 7? The Tower of Babel or Babel, is that correct? 1 to 9, chapter 11, 1 to 9. What's the second one? The posterity or the genealogy or the family tree of Shem. Genesis 11, 10 to 26. And then finally, we have the background of Abraham in Genesis 11, 28 to 32. Now, we have those outlines somewhere. I think they're on the tables in the back. I don't. Uh, you got two of them? Thank you. All right. Um, all right. We're going to take up these three items tonight. Now, Genesis 9, 18 to 11, verse 9 is a unit. You remember we studied that last time? And we remember anything from last time. What do we, I hopefully remember that Genesis 11, 1 to 9, chronologically precedes Genesis 10. So in Genesis 9, 24 to 27, we have the prophecy of the, of the dispersion, the prophecy of the three great lines from Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Prophecy, Genesis 9, 24 to 27. Then in Genesis 10, we have the distribution of the nation. And we looked at that last time. And that takes us down several hundred thousand years, several thousand years. And then in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, we have the cause of that distribution of nations. So that Genesis 11, 1 to 9, what we are going to study tonight, goes back before Genesis 10. That's very important to understand that. Normally, we give cause and then effect. But here we have the effect in Genesis 10, the distribution of nations. And then in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, we have the cause. So uh, to put it all together, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, the ark landed on Ararat, Genesis 8, 4. The ark landed on Ararat. This is the chronology, and I'll throw it up on the screen. If that comes through, hopefully it will. The, old, the ark landed uh, up here in this area right here, Ararat. Up in this area. Here's Ararat probably up in, up in this area. So that's Genesis 8, 4. Now, all through Genesis 9 for that matter. Then in Genesis 11, verse 2, what does it say? Your Bible in Genesis 11, 2. They journey what? Yeah, and that shouldn't be from the east. That should be eastward or southeastward. Not from the east, but toward the east or southeast, southeastward. So they migrated from this area down to the, here's the plain of Shinar. Now what it says in verse 2? They migrated down the plain of Shinar. Verse 2, is that what it says? All right, they, they migrated, they journeyed not from the east, but uh, south eastwardly or eastwardly, southeastwardly, down to Shinar. That's Genesis 11. And there they began to develop culture, and there they eventually erected a city, 
And there they eventually erected the Tower of Babel. How long? We don't know. 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, we don't know, 500 years. But eventually he erected that Tower of Babel. When they erected that Tower of Babel, God said, that's enough. That's enough. What did God get, what mandated God laid upon them in Genesis 1? Multiply and re replenish or fill up, spread out, fill up the earth. He repeated that command in Genesis 9. Uh, be fruitful and multiply and replenish, fill up, populate the earth, move out, move out. Don't stay together, move out. But they disobey God, and they stay together, and they say we're going to make a great center here, the tower that will keep us together. And God said, no, you won't. He judged them by confusing their languages. And when that happened, then they scattered, and the sons of Japheth, scattered this way, and the sons of Hanny scattered this way, and the sons of, of Shem uh, uh, scattered down in this area. And then you have in Genesis 10 a description of that distribution of nations after the Tower of Babel. Genesis 10 is several hundred years after Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Genesis 11, 1 to 9 gives us the C-A-U-S-E, the cause. And Genesis 10 gives us the effect. And this is, this is the effect of the, of the confusion of tongues and the scattering of the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth. And that's important, I believe, to understand. Now, in, in Genesis 1 to 11, we have five supremely important historical facts that help us explain our present state of the world. Five very important facts, Genesis 1 to 11. Obviously, the first one is the creation of this uh, universe of man. You know, we all ask ourselves, where did this come from? Where did this universe come from? Where did man come from? Genesis 1 gives us the answer. The second, uh, what is the origin of bloodshed and hatred? And crime and on all and death what is the origin of this well we got to go back to Genesis 3 to find the origin of sin and crime and bloodshed and right in Genesis 3 marital disharmony and all the ills that besiege our human race Genesis chapter 3 then the third thing we notice in these chapters is the great judgment of God in the flood, which is not only important because it's an illustration of God's judgment upon the human race and a picture of that final judgment, but also because it has something to say about the modern arguments that are used for evolution. Then fourth, we want an account of the diffusion of the races, which we have in Genesis chapter 10. Then there's one other thing we need to know before we siphon off leave that great river of humanity and select one nation, the nation of Israel. One more thing. How come, how do we account for the different languages that men speak? What is the origin of languages? And that's handled in Genesis chapter 11. Isn't it, and, and so Genesis 11 is the, is the termination of primeval history. Will you look here? Genesis 11 is the termination of primeval history. As a matter of fact, Genesis 11, 1 to 9 is a termination. Because with Genesis chapter 11, we begin the genealogy of Shem. And that's really an introduction to the life of Abraham. So we could begin patriarchal history with Genesis 11:10, Because in the rest of Genesis 11, we have the genealogy of Shem, which leads up to Abraham, and the setting of Abraham, the call of his father and grandfather, the call of Abraham in the land of Ur or in Haran. And that's given to us in Genesis 11. So really, when we reach Genesis 11, 9, we're ended with patriot primeval history. And it's an interesting thing that this history begins with one man attempting to be like God, and it ends with a race of men attempting to storm heaven and defy God.
It begins with one man, Adam's defiance of God, and it ends in Genesis 11 with the race's defiance of God. Primeval history begins and ends the same way. Just as our age of grace begins with the rejection of Christ, and this age will end with the acceptance of the Antichrist. So primeval history began with one man's rebellion against God, with introduced sin in the human race, and ends with the uh, race's defiance of God. Now, what is the purpose of Genesis 11, 1 to 9? Well, first, to show the origin of languages. And second, to show how the dispersion of the nations was accomplished. Those are the first two reasons. First, to show the origin of languages. Now, when I had to study Hebrew at seminary, uh, I had some real doubts about, not really doubts about chapter 11, but I kind of wish that hadn't happened, you see. Because I had to wrestle with Greek, and I had to wrestle with Hebrew. And so you kind of wish that maybe Genesis 11 hadn't happened, perhaps. But anyway, Genesis 11 shows us the origin of languages, however it was accomplished, in whatever way God accomplished it. And then secondly, it shows us how the nations were dispersed following the confusion of tongues. It shows us the origin of nations. And then third, it shows us the first state, the first empire-wide act of defiance against God. What is the first great world empire that defies God? Babel. What is the last great empire that's going to defy God in Revelation 17 and 18? Babylon. The first great empire founded by Nimrod that defied God was Babel. The last great empire that will defy God will be Babylon, Revelation 17 and 18. Now let's look at this story. Look at it quickly. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. First of all, notice the setting. Genesis 11, verse 1. And the whole earth were five things here. Number one, the whole earth was a one language and one speech. The word language is lip. That is one method of pronunciation. One method of pronunciation. Uh, it wasn't New England, and it wasn't Southern. Now, I don't know what it was, but you know what I mean. You know when you... I had a little German. When you study German, it's all down here in the throat. You can't speak German well unless you know how to spit a little. Really. <laughs> That's the way it's way down here in the throat. The Hebrews the same way, you know. And the, the Spanish is out here on the lip. But uh, there's different methods of pronunciation. And when we went over to Taiwan last May, why, we heard one that was entirely different. And uh, I think I mentioned to you that when I was over there, both Jimmy Ladder and I preached. I preached on Sunday morning, and he on Sunday night. Uh, although the Sunday night service, you might think I had the big one, but the Sunday night service is the big one there in the college chapel. Dr. Graham, James R. Graham, he, uh, served as our translator. He's fluent in the Mandarin dialect and also fluent in English. And he translated. Only I noticed that I'd say about two sentences. And I get through saying them in about 20 seconds. And he'd take five minutes to translate. And after about 15 minutes, I said, I, right there, on the, I said, listen, how come it takes you longer? Well, he said, I'm not only translating, I'm explaining what you're saying. <laughs> so uh, he had that Mandarin. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And uh, I was glad he had it when we went into some of the rest. But one method of pronunciation and secondly, one, vocabulary. The word speech means vocabulary. Now, verse 2 is the migration. Migration. And, and it came to pass, as they journeyed southeastward, southeastward, as they journeyed southeastward, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, here's the land of Shinar. It's about, uh, about 200 miles it's a fertile, it's an alluvial plain that lies between the river Tigris and the river Euphrates. Very, very fertile alluvial plain. They settled in Shinar. Lies about 200 miles north of the Persian Gulf, although the Persian Gulf over a period of time is probably built up by that, the silt deposits down there. But it's a very, very, uh, very fertile, 
very fertile area, the plain of Sinai. And they migrated eastward or southeastward from up here in Armenia down and located in the plain of Sinai. And they migrated as a family. How long after Noah got out of the ark, how long after that did this migration take place? I don't know. Now, there's no gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 11. It took place within 100 years. Well, if there are some gaps, we don't know. But I don't suppose it took any more than three, 400 years, if it even took that long, perhaps a couple hundred years. They slowly migrated from that cold climate that's not suitable for agriculture. They migrated southeastward until they came to Shinar, discovered the broad plain in the land of Shinar, and there they settled. It was a new alluvial plain, a very rich lowland. Matter of fact, considered the garden spot of this very fertile alluvial plain, lying between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And they settled there. Now between verse 2 and verse 3, probably another 100 years takes place, or 150 years. Down there they developed some art and some sciences. They developed the art of tower building. So we have probably between verse 2 and 3, another lapse of time couple hundred years, 100 years, 200 years. And after they dwelt there and increased family-wise, they decided to hit upon a project. We don't want to scatter. God said, move out, increase. They said, we don't want to. So, verse 4, they said, verse 3 and 4, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly in a kiln, I suppose. And they had brick for stone. See, there's no stone down in this area. Uh, this one of those little hints that the writer of Genesis knew his country well. He went over to Palestine. The writer did this, as the liberals tell us, the writer that had written this lived about 800 B.C. over in Palestine. He would have talked about stone because Palestine's got a lot of stone. But no stone down here. So they had to make brick down here, which is a reflection of the integrity of the Mosaic authorship. So they made brick, verse 3, and, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build first a city and even a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Well, here was a project, both to build a city and also to erect a tower. The main thing, of course, is the tower. And this project is illuminated by archaeology. Now, I'm not going to go into this, uh, especially since I'm not an archaeologist. But you can get any textbook in archaeology and see the illustration of towers in Babylon. The archaeologists have uncovered dozens of towers in this whole area. Now, they're called ziggurats. They're religious towers. The word here, the Hebrew word here, is migdal, which probably uh, was probably not a ziggurat. It probably had no religious connotation to it, at least at this stage. had more a political connotation to it. But it probably was a forerunner of the ziggurats that followed. And you can get archaeology books, and uh, in the first, the second, third chapter of these archaeology books, you will find pictures of these ziggurats that archaeology has uncovered gigantic artificial mountain of sun-dried bricks. Now, what was the purpose of this tower? Well, obviously, to form a center of their self-glorifying enterprise and a rallying point for this godless confederacy. Above all else, a rallying point, a center for this godless confederacy that is set against God. What are the motives that prompted them to do this? May we look at it? Because the same motives are in existence today. And when the Antichrist establishes his empire, these same motives will prompt his work. Now, what are those motives? Well, they're given to us, verses four and three, uh, 3 and 4. Let us build a tower whose top may reach to heaven, let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the 
whole earth. What was their motive? Well, first of all, defiance. An attempt, or should I say this? The same thing we find in Genesis chapter 3. The attempt to be autonomous. Now, I don't like to come on with that word the second time. See, we did it in Genesis 3. Well, that's the sin of Genesis 3. Autonomous. What is that car that we drive? What do we call that? Automobile. And if we hypnotize ourselves, we call that auto-hypnosis. Auto means self. That's not ready quite yet. Auto-hypnosis. And uh, this word autonomous, A-U-T-O, and the other part is N-O-M-O-U-S, autonomous. Now, the word N-O-M-O-S means law. And auto means a law unto myself. See, when God put Adam in the garden, uh, God said, you can eat of all the fruit of the tree, but you can't eat of the fruit of this tree. Because you're under my N-O-M-R. You're under my law. What did Adam say? Me. The one to be under your law. I want to be autonomous. No law. No law. Today it's called situational ethics. Or ethical relativity. We've had the last 15 years a great anti-authoritarian movement. No law. Politically socially, morally, religiously. No law. That was the sin of Genesis 3. No law. No law of God. Now, what was the motive of autonomy? Attempt to be free of God's law. Autonomous. To be like God. Second, let us make a name for ourselves. What would that be? Pride. Pride. And the third one is disobedience, defiance, or disobedience. To God's command. What did God say? And that's the major one. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish. I wonder if I'm coming across here. What was God's command? Replenish. The word replenish means fill up the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill up. That means by expanding, by expanding, fill up the earth. Expand, move out, expand. What did they say? No, we're going to build a tower, stay right here. Defiant, open defiance of God's command. Now we come to God's judgment upon this tower. God's judgment upon this tower. Verses 5, 6, 7. Let's read them together. You follow, I'll read. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. The Lord said, Behold, the people are one. They have all one language. And this they begin to do. This tower building is what they're starting to do. Now, if they start to do that, nothing will be held from them which they have imagined, which they have sinfully imagined to do. Come, let us go down. That's, you know, that always strikes me. They said, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a tower. God said, come, let us go down. Their confound their language. They may not understand one another's speech. Notice three things you have in your outline. First of all, God's investigation. Verse, verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, you mean to say that God had to come down somewhere? No, that's, we don't mean that. The Bible doesn't mean that. That's what's called, may I use the term, we used it before, that's called an anthropomorphism. Now, I know that's a long word. Anthropomorphism. Anthropo, anthropop, anthropology. Anthropology, the study of man. Anthropos, man. Anthropomorphism, morphe, is the Greek word for form. So doctors, when they're studying medical school, study morphology, the study of form. Morphe. So anthropomorphe, anthropomorphism, means to put it in the form of human speech and understanding. Often, there are ideas about God in the Old Testament that would simply boggle our mind. We couldn't understand it if God stated it in theological language. So it's stated in human form. 
The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. But does God have physical eyes? No. But he has the capacity to do that which eyes do. The arm of the Lord is not short in Isaiah 53.1. The arm of the Lord is not short. Does God have an arm? No. No. He is pure spirit. Jesus said God is a spirit. He has no body. But he has the capacity to do what the arm does. The ear of the Lord is not heavy. Does God have an ear? No. But he has the capacity to do what the ear does, and that is to hear. Let us come down. Now, that's an anthropomorphism. doesn't mean that God's somewhere up there and not here, because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Well, that's an anthropomorphism, which means that God always sees everything. He takes it always into account. His eyes run to and fro. So come down means that God, this thing isn't escaping his notice. He isn't off sleeping somewhere. He knows exactly what they were doing. That's the imprint. Just like he knows the thoughts of my heart and the thoughts of your heart as you're sitting right there. He knows everything. So this is God's investment. Secondly, notice God's verdict, verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, the people are one. One and one. And they have all one language. Now, this they begin to do, build a tower. Now, nothing will be withheld from them which they have imagined to do. What's the, what is the point here? Well, the point here is that the people are unified. And the uniting factor is their what? Language. Now, let's say we got 100 people here tonight. 100 of us. Let's say that somehow, now, we all speak the same language. You can understand me. I could understand you. If we had a fire downstairs that was very dangerous, and I shouted, fire, you'd all know what I meant, and you'd get out. See? Or if I said, we're going to pass the collection plate, you'd all know what I meant, and get out. <laughs> <laughs> but, see, you would understand me. But supposing, supposing that somehow, miraculously, every one of us was given a different language, each one of us including myself, so that none of you could understand what anybody else said, and you couldn't understand me. And then supposing I said, fire, fire, you wouldn't know what I meant, see? And that would be bad. Supposing I said, we're going to take an offering, that would even be worse, wouldn't it, see? You wouldn't know what to do, see? Uh, our unity is a unity of language. Now, follow me here. We're here tonight, and I suppose we're all the same. So the unity of language is a good thing. But suppose we were all hardened sinners. We're all defiant of God. Then that unity, which is a good thing, really it's a neutral thing, would be used in the wrong way. See? So God decided to confound their languages, to destroy the thing above all else that unifies them. They're united in sin. And being united in sin and having the tool of the unity of language, God said there's nothing that they'll be restrained from doing. They'll give vent to the vilest imagination of their hearts. So he said, I'm going to confound the thing that makes unity in sin effective. And that is a unified language. And God confounded the languages. And may I say, my friend, despite all the attempts to find one common language. It'll fail. Now, Zechariah tells us that in the millennium, there will be one common language. But in the millennium, it'll at least start out with all saved people. And Jesus Christ himself will rule in the millennium. So there won't be that problem. But uh, from the Tower of Babel until the millennium, there's going to be division of language. Really, this was an act of mercy as well as an act of judgment. Then notice verse 7, God's sentence. Come, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, notice a couple of things here. God's sentence is he's going to confuse their languages. They spoke one language, one lip, God confused this, and this is a confusion of tongues. And the confusion of tongues is the form of judgment that 
disrupted the plans of the Babel builders and affected their dissemination. Now, let me ask three or four questions. First question, although I can answer this, at least to my satisfaction, very quickly. Was the miracle effected in the ear or in the tongue? See, there's some men, in order to get around to scale down the supernatural, interpret both Acts 2 and Genesis chapter 11 in terms of a miracle that took place in the ear rather than the tongue. Well, I don't think so. If we interpret the text literally, it's clear. He deals with their speech, their vocabulary, and he confounds their speech and their vocabulary. It's not a miracle in the ear, it's a miracle in their tongue. And God does it. Secondly, which came first? The confusion of tongues and then dissemination or the dissemination and the gradual confusion of tongues. Which is the order? Confusion of tongues and then dissemination. Now, you know why I point that out? Because the liberals say, just the reverse, that these nations were scattered. And as they were scattered, they forgot their native tongue and uh, adopted some other tongue. And that accounts for the confusion of tongues, the different tongues. But there are two things against that. Number one, the Bible, frankly, doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God miraculously, supernaturally, confused their tongues, and then they were scattered. The Bible clearly states that. Look at verse 9. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there, number one, confound the language of all the earth, and from there, God did there, did there at Shinar, did there confound the language, and from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. It's obvious in verse 9. First confusion, then dissemination. But the second thing that's against it is this. Supposing a man is scattered from Germany to America. Now, he doesn't forget his native German. His son will forget it a good deal. And the grandson, the great-grandson, will forget German altogether and adopt a new tongue over here in America. But when the people were scattered, there was no new tongue over there to adopt, see. They would have carried that same tongue with them. So even if they were disseminated, there would be no way to show how they picked up another tongue by which they couldn't understand the first tongue. So the confusion came first, and then the dissemination. Now, a third question. How was this confusion accomplished? How did God do it in their tongue? I don't know, and I don't know anybody that uh, does know. I don't know how they were confused. Did, uh, did God give to each one of these groups an entirely new language? Or was each left to scatter in utter confusion and to begin to develop their own language? Well, the Bible is silent. May I repeat that? Did God give to these different groups supernaturally a different language so they didn't have to learn it? Or did they scatter and have to develop as primitive tribes have to do so today? They had to develop a new language. The Bible is silent. Was the original language still maintained by one of these groups? Well, if I had the answer to that and could publish the book, I'd make a lot of money. Nobody knows. See. Hebrew wasn't the original language. See. We just don't know what it was. The Bible is simply silent on, on those questions. How soon were the effects felt? Immediately or gradually? I suppose they were felt immediately. Now let's go on to the fifth thing in our, in our study, and that's the consequences of God's judgment. What are the consequences of the confusion of the tongue? What were the results? Well, let me notice the just three of them. Number one, three results, and they're not, by the way, on the paper. That's three different things. What are the results? Number one, defeat, destruction, dispersion. Three things. Defeat, destruction, dispersion. I remember when I was a boy, I read a little story about an English teacher who asked uh, one of the students, uh, you know, they asked you to put words in a sentence together. The English teacher 
But these are the kind of things that stick in your mind and come into your mind when you ought to be real serious teaching Genesis 11. <laughs> but she asked the boy, she said, I want you, uh, Tommy, to put into one sentence um, uh, defense and uh, defense and uh, detail and uh, defeat. Right away he said, uh, there was a dog that jumped the fence and defeat went over defense before detail. <laughs> so, now there are three words, all start with these. Defeat, destruction, and dispersion. Number one, defeat of their ungodly plan. What did they try to do? Build a tower, get a name. God defeated their plan. Psalms, too, is a beautiful description of that. Number two, destruction of their unity in sin. How will they do that? By destroying their unity in thief. Number three, dispersion. Dispersion. And the ultimate formation of nations. Now, uh, you've got three things down that outline. I want you to look at that first one. You can understand the, the, the second and third. But the confusion and scattering was a definite act of retribution, retributive judgment of God. Do you see that point? Retributive. When we say judgment, we mean one thing. When we say retributive judgment, we mean a little, uh, something a little different. Retributive judgment means that uh, the sentence that's paid back is equal to the crime. That's the idea behind tooth for tooth and eye for an eye. Not the literal eye was taken, but that the judgment, the sentence, ought to be equal to the crime. If a man stole another man's cow, they didn't put him to death. That wouldn't be equal to the crime. But if a man premeditatedly, openly, with violence, put a man to death, then he was to forfeit his life. The sentence was equal to the crime. That's retributive. What does the Bible say? Galatians 6, 7, 8. Whatsoever a man sows, that. The important word is C-H-A-T. Whatsoever a man sows, that. That. So he was, he'll reap what he sows. See, man doesn't sow grapes. Uh, man doesn't sow orange uh, seeds and get lemon trees. Man doesn't sow wheat and get corn. Whatever a man sows, that. Philly also eat. That's retributive judgment. And it comes into play here. So God gives them. Instead of unity, God gives to them confusion. Instead of concentration, what does God do? Scatter them. Instead of getting saved, they get shame. See? That's retributive judgment. And God judged them retributively. Now there's some lessons we could learn here. But um, I want to move on to the rest of the chapter. Just mentioned by way of conclusion that here the era of human government ends in failure. And here prime evil history reaches its climax by man attempting to glorify himself and rebel against God. May I point out what I pointed out at the beginning? The beginning of prime evil history was marked by the attempt of a man to rebel against God. Primeval history closes with a race attempting to rebel against God. Now I suggest to you that you take Babel and Babylon and trace it through the scripture. We don't have time. Matter of fact, there's a great book uh, called To Babylon written by H-I-S-L-O-P. I happened to, Mrs. Wonderlook asked, asked me about it about four or five weeks ago. It was out of print. just came back in print again. It's a hard book to read. But he traces Babylon from its inception, Genesis 11, all the way through human history unto Revelation 17 18. Babylon is a, is a symbol. It's a real thing. But also a symbol of enmity and defiance against God. And here's the beginning of it. You want to find the beginning of Caesar and Napoleon and Hitler 
and communism, revolt against God, you go back to Genesis chapter 11. There's where it began with this race attempt. May I say one other thing, that God tolerates sin to a certain point, and then he moves in with judgment. That principle is stated, it's a very important principle, in Genesis 15. May I ask you to turn with me very quickly. Genesis chapter 15. God says to Abraham, uh, verse 13, Genesis 15, 13, He said unto Abraham, Know of a surety thy seed shall be a soldier in the land that's not theirs, that's Egypt. Shall serve them, shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation in Egypt whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. You'll go to your fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in the good old age. But the fourth generation, they shall come back here to Canaan. Well, Lord, why take them down to Egypt at all? Why don't you just let, the, let my family, why don't you let my family develop here in Canaan? Why take them down to Egypt for 430 years? Last part of verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet what? Full. Who are the Amorites? They were the inhabitants of Canaan. And here's the principle. God tolerates sin and tolerates it and tolerates it, tolerates it until iniquity gets. Then God moves in decisively. He did so at the flood. He did so at Babel. He did so at the time of the Exodus with Pharaoh. He did so in 586 when he judged Judah. He did so in 70 AD. And he's going to do so in the future at the second coming of Jesus. That means that God may allow the growth of anti-God uh, uh, movements in America and of sending America, he may let it go. See, God allows iniquity to grow till it reaches its full then. The dam of God's patience breaks. God speaks in judgment. You say, why does God do that? Second Peter 3, 9. God is long-suffering. He's not willing any to perish. He wants to give man every opportunity to be saved. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. Genesis 11, verse 10. Here's the posterity of Shem. Genesis 11, verse 10. Genesis 11, verse 10. Begin with verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Or how we translated that? This is the history of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, begat our Paxad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begot our Paxad, 500 years, begot sons and daughters, and our Paxad lived five and 30 years, and begot Shelah. So the total life of our Paxad, of Shem, was a um, hundred years plus five hundred years. He was six hundred years old. Shem was six hundred years old when he died. Our Paxad lived five and thirty years, begot Shelah, and Paxad lived after begot Shelah four hundred and three. So four hundred and three plus thirty-five is four hundred and thirty-eight years. Okay. Four hundred and thirty-eight years. Now, what's the purpose of this genealogy? Well, to trace the line of descent. Let's skip down. Let's see if we can pick this up. Our Paxad, verses 12 and 13, begat Sheila. Verse 14, Sheila begot Eber. Verse 16, Eber lived for 30, uh, 34 years, begot Peleg. Verse 18, Peleg lived 30 years, begot Ru. Verse 20, Ru lived 32, begot Sarah. Verse 22, Sarah begat Nahor. Nahor, Abraham's granddaddy. Verse 24, Nahor lived nine and twenty years and begot Terah, Abraham's daddy. Verse 26, Terah lived seventy years, begot Abram, Nahor, and Herod. Now, it doesn't mean he begot them all three in the same year. That's the way Scripture stated. Now, the purpose of this genealogy is to trace out the line of descent from Shem to Abraham. Now we've got two genealogies. Two genealogies. Genesis 5, who was the first man? Adam. 
And who was the man that rolled through the flood? So in Genesis 5, we have Adam to Noah, 10 generations, 10 men. Then in Genesis 11, we have it from Shem to Abraham. And of course, Shem was Noah's son. So we got another 10 generations. All right, now let's see if we can put this on the... that comes through can you see it in the back can you see it in the back Paul can you see it all right there it is Genesis 5 and uh, Genesis 10 1 all we need in Genesis 10 1 is a connection between Noah and Shem so we have Genesis 5 Adam Seth Enoch Canaan Malil Jared Enoch who walked with God Methuselah the oldest man Lamech and Noah one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then, then Noah and Shem, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Shem, our pack said, Selah, Eber, Eber, from whom descended the Hebrews, Eber. Abraham in Genesis 14 is called Abraham the Hebrew, Eber. Peleg, who lived when the earth was divided, probably. Tower of Babel. Lu, Sarah, Nahor, Hiram, and Abraham. Those are the, are the generations. Now, if we, we had Tira, we would, uh, I don't know, I don't like to do this. I'd rather have it, if I can get it right, um, put that. We got over here, we'd have um, uh, Haran and Nahor. Lot. And then we put it like this. Does that come out right? Doesn't, doesn't quite. There it is, like that. Three sons, Haran, Abraham, and Nahor. And Haran's son was Lot, so that Abraham was Lot's uncle. And we know that from it. Notice that there are ten generations, and it's structured about the um, same way. Now, I want to look at two or three things here. I hope you'll stay with us on this thing. It's not quite as dry as it may appear to be. You notice there are ten generations in both of them. Ten generations in both of them. Um, ten generations from Adam to Noah, and ten generations from to Abraham. Now, what is the purpose of these family trees? The purpose is to trace the line of descent from Adam down to Jesus Christ. And the two critical men are Abraham and David and the chronology the genealogies are very carefully guarded in the scriptures we have them in first about first the six seven chapters of first chronicles and Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 1 you have these same names repeated now there's ten ten men in each one now will you listen very carefully David was asking me some questions when we were coming down here. I'm glad he did because it kind of uh, reviewed something I wanted to say. How old is this universe? How old is this earth? Well, there are three ways if we, if, uh, that we can get time. Uh, one is to say that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. I do not believe that. Second to get way to get time is that uh, the days in Genesis chapter 1 were long periods of time. Now, they're good Bible believers that believe both of those. They're thoroughgoing, fundamental, committed to verbal inspiration. I don't happen to believe either one of those. That's two ways to get time. The other way is to say that there's a gap in these genealogies. Now, if I say there are no gap in these genealogies, and the days are 24 hours, and there's no gap between verse 1 and verse 3 of Genesis 1, then Usher's chronology is about right. The world was created about 4,000 B.C. It's been here about 6,000 years. I tend to believe that, that, that this earth runs between 10 to 15,000 years. And I was very interested. Last night I heard Dr. John Whitcomb, and somebody asked him a question, 
And the question answer appeared, how old do you believe this world is? He said 10 to 12,000 years. And I think probably between 10 and 15,000 years. Now, where do we get the time? Not between verse 1 and 3, not the day-age series, but here. There are probably some gaps in these genealogies. There are probably some gaps here. Well, you say, how do you know there are gaps? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of who? Well, now you've got a thousand years right there. And you've got three generations to every hundred years. You've got 30 generations between that. Jesus Christ, the son of David, and what else? Son of Abraham. He got another almost thousand years, assuming that Abraham lived around 2000 B.C., probably born about um, 2066 or 2166, right in there. Another thousand years. The word son doesn't mean what we mean, son. It means descendant, descendant. He's a son of David. He's a descendant of David. And the word B-E-G-A-T, as old Robert Dick Wilson, the great Semitic scholar, thoroughgoing evangelical, said one time, that's used seven different ways in the Old Testament. And begot can mean became the ancestor of. We would say David begot Christ. That would mean David became the ancestor of Christ. Not that he was his immediate son. So when it says, Lu begat Sarah, it may mean Lu became the ancestor of Sarah. And there may be 500 years here, see? So that. We know there are no generation gaps in some of these, but there may have been in some others. Well, you say, how do you know? Well, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 8. Matthew 1, 8. And Asa begat, Jeho begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begat who? Who? Uzziah. Joram begat Uzziah. But when we turn over to the Old Testament, we find that there is, uh, that there is, it, it comes up like this. That Jehoram begat Ahaziah. This is, in this is in Kings. It's also in Chronicles. Jehoram, or Joram, either spelling, Joram or Jehoram begat Ahaziah. Ahaziah begat Athaliah, the woman. Athaliah reigned, died, killed, she begat, and then her son, Joash. Joash, Amaziah, and Amaziah, three names the same, Uzziah or Azariah. Well, what does Matthew 1, 8 say that last phrase? Joram, is that right? Joram begat whom? Uzziah. But as a matter of fact, one, two, three, four, here's a fifth down the line, see? What does that B-E-G-O-T mean? Became the ancestor. We say, is that a mistake in the Bible? Absolutely not. The men who wrote this were very jealous of family trees. They would have known this if it were a mistake. Were a mistake. No, it's common. Because in Matthew 1, 1, it says, Jesus Christ, the son of... See, obviously, that word son and begot are used in different senses. Now the question arises, are there any gaps here? I tend to think so. We know from archaeology, which is uh, an exact science compared to evolution, archaeology that the city of, of Jericho is 6,500, years B.C. That being so, it's... Uh, that we got to go back at least 7,000 years. But if we didn't have any gaps here, no gap between verse 1 and 3 of Genesis 1, and the days are 24 hours, then we have the creation of the world about 4,100 B.C. How do we, how do we, um, how do we settle it? Well, I think, just as Dr. Wickham spoke on last night, I think that there's some gaps here, but not five 
thousand years between each one. Dr. Buswell inclines to that, see, and an outstanding uh, evangelical uh, fundamental. But he believes that, that there's some. I don't believe there's a long period of time, but there could be a period of time. And if there is, then enough time. You notice the family trees, the genealogies are constructed somewhat artificially. How many names in Genesis? Five. Ten names. How many names in Genesis? Ten. Eleven. Ten names. When you come to Matthew 1, there are 42. Fourteen. 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 And he left out four, see? What were those? Why were they arranged that way? Probably for memory purposes. They kept them in memory. So they're constructed 14, 14, 14. And in Genesis 5, 10. And in Genesis 11, 10. And if so, then there's some gap. If there's no gap, then we're up against about 4,000 B.C. We not only have a problem with evolution, which I don't have any problem with. I don't think we ought to give any credence to that. <clears throat> but we do have art, the testimony of archaeology of some of these ancient cities. And I think the best place is to find here. Now you know some of the men here. Shem, Eber, Peleg. Look, going back to Genesis 11, the man Peleg. The man Peleg. Genesis chapter 11, Peleg. And, and we skip over to Genesis 11.25, Genesis 10.25. Genesis 10.25, And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was who? Peleg. And the name of the other was Jotan. Now, he doesn't even discuss Jotan in Genesis 11, because Jotan is the father of the tribes that... In, that that settled in the Arabian Peninsula. So he doesn't follow, but he does follow Peleg. Now what happened? Now Peleg, unto Eber was born two sons, and them was Peleg, for in his days was the earth what? That probably is a reference to the confusion of tongues. And that perhaps may be where Genesis 11 fits into Genesis 10. Now let's go down to the end Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. And let's finish it out. One more thing. One more thing. Do you notice that there's a decline in the light span? All the gerontologists, is that right? Gerontologists, is that old age? All the gerontologists, I suppose, ought to be interested in it. But you notice there's a decrease of light span. Before the flood, they lived 900 years. 900 years. Noah also. But Shem, how long did Shem live? 600 and how, a little more than 600, didn't he? Six, 600 years, well, let's see, he was, Shem was 100 years old, lived after he got 500 years, and 600 years. Shem lived 600. So we have a drop of 300 years right after the flood. Now, let's skip on down. Look at verse 17. Verse 50. Sheila lived after he begot Eber 403 years, and altogether 438 years. And Eber, verse 16, lived 430 years, begot Peleg, and lived 430 years, and begot sons and daughters, and 30 more years. That's 460 years. Now, then Peleg, the earth, Babel. And immediately after Babel, verse 18, Peleg lived 30 years, and Peleg lived after he begot Ruth 209 years. How many years is that? See, that drops another 200 years. When was the, when did these age spans drop? When you look up here, when did they drop? Right after the flood, number one, and right after the Tower of Babel. Now, right after Babel, dropped about 300 years right after the flood and dropped another 200, 250 years right after Babel. By the time we get down to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they lived, you know, 120, 130 years before we start to get down to normal span of life. Now, what happened? 
immediately after the flood. What happened immediately after Babel that decreased the life span? I don't know. I don't know. If you find out, write a book. They'll pay you for it. But I, I don't know. All I know is that it's a fact. Now let's read the last six verses. We'll be through. Verse 20, 25. Nahor lived after he begot Tyr 119 years, begot sons and daughters. Tyr lived 70 years, begot Abram, Nahor, and Herod. Now verses 27 to 32. These, the, this is the history of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his nativity, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. He was, she was his half-sister. In those early days, God allowed this. In 1 Corinthians 5 and Leviticus, he condemns it. It's called incest. Well, in the early history of the race, God allowed it. And Abram Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren. And that is perhaps the important thing in these six verses. Because that's going to be the keynote of the next 15 chapters. Sarai was barren. Because she was barren, Abraham got a, another wife down in Egypt and spawned the modern Israel-Arab conflict. Sarah was barren. Verse 31, Terah took Abram his son, Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, Sarah's daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go in the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let's look at that, and then we shall be through. Where did he go? Well, they were down here in Ur. And Ur is right down here, Ur of the Chaldees. And they migrated up to what's called the Fertile Crescent, up to here, Haran. And you know, when I was a boy, I said, man, they kind of like Lewis and Clark. See, they plowed new territory. And then I did a little study and found out that this was a well-traveled route. This is the Fertile Crescent. And they stayed there 15 years, I think, Abraham and after his father died, then he came on down to Canaan. And that's where we pick up the story next Monday night. Mm -hmm.